morning. My name's Chad, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, excited to spend time together. Great to see people. Um, a lot of you, uh, some I'm seeing new faces and so excited for what the Lord is doing and that we're, uh, we've kind of made it through. We did it. The Lord did it. Um, some exciting stuff that's happening uh, right now, and you can pray for him, but uh, Pastor Sammy is translating my words into Spanish live uh, in another room so that uh, some of our friends from Honduras can hear the sermon. And so pretty exciting stuff uh, that that's happening. Be praying for him. I want to pray for us as well, just that God would meet us uh, in his word. Let's do that. Lord Jesus, we don't quite grasp the phrase, all hail King Jesus. The world doesn't quite grasp that phrase either. But your word tells us that a future day will come when every person who has ever lived, past, present, future, people yet to be born, will see the sky split. You will return in glory and no matter how they lived, even if it was for darkness with their hair on fire, they will say, all hail King Jesus. You are the King. Lord, our place this morning is to be able to see behind the curtain, to catch a glimpse of eternity as we spend time in your word. And I ask, Lord, that your spirit would be moving through the room, even right now. Uh, Lord, I love, in the New Testament, just read it recently in the book of Acts, uh, talks about Paul and his companions were trying to go somewhere to tell people about you. And it says very specifically, the spirit of Jesus prevented them from doing so. And then they went somewhere else, which you did want them to go. So Lord, that's, that's pretty involved. That's you kind of all up in our stuff and we need it. We need it this morning. So Lord, would you uh, open your word to us as we open it in Christ's name, amen. Uh, if you have a copy of God's word, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 16. We are going to listen to one of Jesus' stories, a parable that he told. But as you listen to it, and I've titled this morning, Jesus, why did you tell this story, that story? Because it's, it's some controversy surrounding this parable. This has been called the problem child parable. And last week, James did Luke 15, which is so fun. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. It's awesome. And then I get this one. Um, but it's, it's kind of been that kind of week. This is a problem parable, one that is difficult to interpret. Um, you actually, if you open up a commentary and then you open up another one and people that are kind of within what we would say orthodox teaching of scripture, you would hear a different interpretation of this parable. Many saying, no, no, it's this. No, it's this. No, really it's this. And so we approach it this morning. Uh, and one of the reasons, and you're going to see this, but I'll just give you a little hint at the beginning is because Jesus seems to be commending and praising shady business tactics, lying stealing. And he's saying, this is something to be noticed as a good thing. And you're like, what? So granted, you can see why people are like, um, I don't really know what it means. Um, so some would say it's a problem parable. Some would say this is a problem book. They don't like it. 
There are certain things they like in it. Maybe that's you. There are other things they don't like in it. In fact, there's a famous guy in history. Let me show you this copy of his uh, work. Thomas Jefferson decided, I don't like everything in here. He actually took a razor blade and some glue and he cut precisely passages out and pasted them into this book. That is the real book. It's in the Smithsonian, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. You can buy this on Amazon. You can own this on your Kindle. You can read. And what Thomas Jefferson set out to do was to remove everything supernatural or miraculous. Everything. And sometimes in the middle of a story, you'll actually, you can see the way he, he pasted something in there. He cut a sentence right in half because the last half of the sentence said something about the supernatural and miraculous. And he only wanted the common wisdom kind of principles, you know, the good stuff. Jesus was a good teacher. You'll hear people say that. His Bible ends like this. Jesus was killed. He died. He was put in a tomb. They rolled a stone in front. The end. Oops. That's not a fun ending. And Paul even says, If he is not risen from the dead, we are among the most to be pitied in the world of all people. But that's what Thomas Jefferson decided. You know what? These are the things I want. These are the things I don't want. Ironically, today's story made the cut. Thomas Jefferson said, there's nothing miraculous about this one. There's nothing supernatural about this story. Keep it in. Not so fast. Not so fast. And this is as I spent time with the Lord this week in this parable. I talked to a lot of people actually and read a lot, prayed a lot, did a lot of laps around the lake asking the Lord about certain parts of this passage. Um, and you, you lean on people that are smarter than you when you get to something that's like, hmm, you don't say, I think I'll come up with something new. Like you don't do that. <laughs> you actually look. And this is a great principle to take to all of scripture. If it's been interpreted a certain way for about 2000 years, that's probably the interpretation. The ones that come along in the last 25 to 50 years, Eh, I don't think so. I don't think so. You don't have a group of people saying, you know, you really needed us. 21st century, 20th century people, all those poor saps before, they didn't really know what it meant. But we're smart and we know you reject that, okay? So you you lean back on people. And so one of the guys that I love, his name is Kenneth Bailey. Uh, My professor at Wheaton, Gary Burge, introduced us to Kenneth Bailey, a book called Through Poet and Peasant Eyes. And he was looking at the parables, This guy, Kenneth Bailey, spent 50 plus years in the Middle East as a professor in Jerusalem and Beirut and all these different things. And he was a scholar and he would take the parables and read them to Bedouin farmers and shepherds. So last two summers ago, when we were in Israel, we actually met one. We were on this crazy long trip, the road to Jericho. We had some of our group get dehydrated. Excuse me, reached the end. People are like passing out, literally passing out. And here comes this Bedouin riding up on a donkey. This guy came like trucking up. He's like, you know, it's like, I mean, it's just funny because it's a little donkey and he's kind of a big guy. And he's like, I can help you. I may need a little money to help you. Like it was just a really interesting situation. So Kenneth Bailey read the parables to Bedouins. Now Americans hear the parables, Westerners hear the parables and we're like, hmm, pretty good, cool. All right, parable of soils. Yeah, I get it. Good soil, hard soil, birds, rocks, uh, coin, sure. Coin, when I, I lost my wallet once. When I found it, that was awesome. Um, 
sheep, don't really know much about sheep. So we read it and we're like, hmm, great. Okay, thanks. He read these parables to the Bedouins and they were like, ah, no. Like he's getting, and he's like, am I, what am I, what's going on? Am I reading these wrong? What he stumbled upon was there was this whole context of an Eastern way of thinking, shame and honor culture. Because the first question he asked was in the parable of the prodigal son, where's the cross? Where's the cross? Just looks like a good old works parable. The guy's out there, he's sinning. What does he do? Hmm. I think I'll go home. Yep. So you too should go home, get your act together, gird up your loins, pull up your bootstraps and follow God. So he's asking the question. And as he started to read that parable, the one that James did just an amazing job last week preaching on, if you haven't heard it, I really encourage you to listen, was that this isn't about the guy, the son out there who is really putting, pulling his own weight and and coming to an understanding of what he needs to do to salvation. This is about the love of the father. This is about the honor of the father. And as you read, and as he read, he realized that the father running to meet him, and James mentioned that last week, they didn't run. He's already bringing shame upon himself, running, and he runs to meet him. Why? Because the village is probably going to stone him or at least pelt him with something. He is not welcome. The father cuts it off and says, no, I take the shame on me. I bring him back into the fold. I put the robe on, I put the ring. He is my son. Oh, did he deserve that? No. Did the father have to do that? No. And so these Bedouins listen to that and they're like, that would never happen. And you realize what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is the God who calls you to relationship. So I say that as we look at this one this morning, because I was looking to Kenneth Bailey, what does this mean? This is a difficult parable. One of the things he brought up was this. Prior to the year 400 or so, there were, like if you look in your Bible right now, and I know you probably got your, uh, your device, but either way, it says Luke 16, the parable of the dishonest manager, right? There's a big, bold one six there. Prior to the year 400, there were no chapter breaks. Just one story, just moving right through. And so Kenneth Bailey, as he studied this and as he brought this to Middle Eastern scholars, they believe that this is a continuation in what Jesus was just talking about, just from another angle. He's gonna start talking about the unjust steward, but he's working his way and rabbis would go from light to heavy. So coin, sheep, sons, manager, business, being called to account. So wanted to say that, but here's also a question I had about Luke 15. And I'm this way when I read, and I know it's just a parable, he's telling a story, but what happens after the party? The son comes home, he has this huge party, the fattened calf, he's back. What does he do the next day? Does he live any differently? It's called the unfinished parable, why? Because the older brother is where? In the field. And we're waiting, what will he do? How will he respond? It's the two lost sons. How will they change their life? So here's this grace, this heart change, this amazing love of the father. Yay, you're home, let's have a party, it's celebration. And then the next day is back to the real world. How are you gonna live differently? What's gonna change? So when it comes to us, 
If nothing changes in your outward life based on your relationship with Jesus, did something really happen to your heart? Do you really know him? It's kind of what the Bible keeps bringing up over and over. If there's no outward change, if, as we've said in the last couple of months, if you're not willing to love the resident alien, to spend yourself on behalf of the poor, what's the problem? What's going on in your heart? Today's parable gets specific about that outside stuff. If 15 was the heart, 16 is, hey, let's talk about the hands and the feet and what you're going to do with it. So Luke 16, just the first two verses to set the stage. Here we go. He also, which is a real little simple grammatical clue for you, that it is kind of a little continuation. Also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. Jesus is giving you a behind the scenes look at a moment of crisis in somebody's life. It's not fun. It probably made this guy sick to his stomach when he heard that he needed to talk to him. He has been called into the boss's office. He is in trouble and he hears these words. I'm letting you go. There's the door. Turn in the books. I'm calling you to account. So 18 years ago, two almost to the month, it may be even close to the day, I was called into the senior pastor's office. As a young youth pastor, to my knowledge, we had great things going on. 150 to 200 high school kids every week, small groups, kids growing in Jesus, fun worship, lots of great things going on. And I get this question. Do you see us as a place that you will be, uh, are you for us? Are you for our vision? are you going to be here in five years? I was like, and I was young, I was cocky. I was kind of had a chip on my shoulder. And so I was like, I don't know. I mean, who can say five years? And here are the words. We have decided, and with a nice little, and I've prayed about this. The Lord has told me uh -huh, <laughs> that we're letting you go. You will not be going with us. What? Now I'm not even going to get into just the, all the stuff that was going on and the different things I felt other than to say it was awful. It was awful to get to that moment and to hear those words. We are letting you go. You will not be moving forward with us. So it gives you some context I felt that. As soon as I, heard, I read it, I was like, ooh, I know what that's like. I know what that feels like. Some of you may have experienced that too. It says he was wasting his possessions. How do we know this is connected to Luke 15? The word for wasting is the same as the word for squandered. The young son squandered his father's estate. Exactly the same word as the man who wasted his owner the owner of the state, the master of the house's possessions. Jesus is like, let me hit this from another angle. Wasting. So as we look at it, is this just about money? That is one interpretation. That actually a lot of people, this is just about good stewardship, how you handle your finances, whether you do a good job. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. He just wants to, you don't want to waste things. You want to be a good steward. On the surface, you're going to see some decent principles for living with good stewardship, integrity with your finances. It's definitely there. But is there more? Think about this. The man is called to account for his management. Let me say that in a few different ways. Give me the books. Let's have a look. You're done. You're fired. You're out. Your time is up. Oh, Jesus, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Your time is up. You are called to account. Jesus is, God is the owner. He is the rich man in the story. The manager is us. Called to account. Your time is up. So in Middle Eastern culture, if you've stolen from somebody, if you are in debt to somebody, you don't just get to declare bankruptcy and kind of go try somewhere else. You don't get to just be in debt and yeah, yeah, I'm working on that, I'm sorry. You go to prison. You go to debtor's prison and not just you, your family. So if things go the way they're supposed to go, the guy goes home and he says, yeah, I've been stealing from him. And so pack up the kids, we're going to prison. What? You did what? That's what happens. But in this story, the guy doesn't say that. He doesn't say you're called to account. I know you've been stealing from me. He obviously knows. He doesn't say they're here to take you away. He says, turn in the books. Creates this little window of time. There's mercy a little bit. There's grace to do something. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The gospel says we owe something that we cannot pay and that we will be called to account for every word, deed, action, thought. Turn in the books, Chad. I need to see everything. Prodigal sons owed their father. They were shown mercy. What's happening here? So who's the audience? The disciples are the audience. We see that at the beginning, but we also know in Luke 15 that the tax collectors and sinners are also the audience. And you'll know at the end of 16 that the Pharisees are also listening in because next week you'll hear that they're like, they heard what he said and they were mad about it. They're all kind of leaning in and listening. What are they gonna do? What will we do? Verse three, the manager said to himself, you ever have conversations with yourself? Do you talk to yourself? I talk to myself. And he, you have serious conversations with yourself. What shall I do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? My master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. Okay, okay, here's what I'm going to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people, maybe people, I, I got to do something. I got to get people to think that I'm something that I'm not with, so that they'll receive me into their houses. So he calls all of his master's debtors one by one. And he says to the first, hey, how much is your debt? He says, a hundred measures of oil, which was a lot. He said, hey, shh, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Whoa. To another one, how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, yeah, take yours and write down 80. And they're like, really? Okay, that's awesome. Wow. The manager is saying to himself, what am I gonna do about my future? 
Now put it right into eternal thought and language. What am I going to do about my future? <laughs> because just like the picture shows, your life is that long. That's it. At a certain point, you make the transition. It's done. You cannot change it. What am I going to do about my future? It's a moment of desperation for this guy. He realizes he's heading toward a cliff. His life is going 90 miles an hour. There's no stopping it unless he does something. And he has been granted this little moment of time, a short window to try to do something. He's being let go, but not quite yet. He says, you're going to be let go. Give me the books. Okay, I'll, um, I'll bring those right over. Doesn't do that, does he? There's no desire to, and Kenneth Bailey pointed this out too. Usually in this kind of situation, he says, I've seen like 60 of these different situations between an employer and an employee. He says, in the Middle East, there is begging. There, is, there are days of negotiation if this happens. If somebody says to you, we're going to let you go turn in the books. They're like, no, 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 no. Sir, let me just, and it's days. They'll beg. They'll bring back. Look, look at what I've done. Look at this at what I've done. He doesn't do it at all. He's just, okay. Okay. Clear thinking. He's going through his options. So think about this in life, but also think about this for eternity. I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't do manual labor. I'm too ashamed to beg. I love this little detail right here. As we think about this application of this parable to our own hearts, we will try lots of things and fail to appease that ache in our hearts that is only made to be solved by Jesus Christ. We'll try so many things. And we'll get to the end and be like, yeah, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I tried that. I tried that. That didn't work. That didn't work. That's what he's doing. He's kind of going through his options in his head. I can't do this. I can't do this. So it's a mad scramble to try and figure out a way to get something, anything out of this reality. So what does he do? Calls and becomes the most popular guy in town. He's the greatest. How did you do that? You have the greatest master. I can't believe you were able to get our debts cut in half. Wow. So the master is in a bit of a pickle here because now he looks good to his debtors. And here's the guy in the middle with cheap suit, hair slicked back. Hey, okay. That's who he is. And that's what he's doing. Who's the loser in this? Who's losing in this situation? The master. Hmm. Think back to Luke 15. Who lost? The father. Who's losing here? The master. The rich man, the owner, takes the loss. And who gets the sweet deal? The shrewd, lying, thieving manager. The plot thickens. Jesus, why are you telling this story? Verse 8. Hold on to your hats because Jesus is about to do something we don't think he should do. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. You're a liar. You're a cheat. You're a thief. And you're really good at all those things. He commends him for that. And then Jesus says, let me give you a little commentation, you know, commentary on what just happened here in that story. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. 
Jesus, did you just tell me to use my money to make friends? Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Oh, this isn't about money, Lord, is it? You just brought up eternity and eternal dwellings. What are those? One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And we would agree with those things. So if you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? True riches, the kingdom of God. And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What do you mean, Jesus? You cannot serve God and money. I thought this wasn't about money. It is, and it isn't. It is, and it isn't. The master commended the dishonest manager. Jesus, why? It sure sounds like you're highlighting stealing, lying, and just overall gross worldly ways of doing things with slick back hair. Surely not. Use your money to make friends so that when it fails, you at least have friends in heaven. Are you saying we can buy our way into heaven? Nope. What is he saying then? The truth of his word isn't supposed to be confusing, nor is it this cryptic puzzle where you're like, hang on, hang on. And God's like, ha ha, sorry, come back later. You can't figure it out. And this is why I would say before of that whole thing of people telling you, yeah, you need really smart people. They have to, they have to tell you like they spend tons of time and years. They got their PhDs and they're the only ones that can tell you what the Bible means. That's not what the Bible says. There is wisdom to be gained in study and you should. You can mine the depths of scripture for the rest of your life and not even get within an inch. But the Holy Spirit, when, it is, when he is given to you, when you come to Jesus, it says he will lead you into all truth. He will not leave you sitting there where you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And some of you already know what God is probably trying to say to you this morning from this parable. But let's dig for a minute. And I love just, I thought of this verse. I was, I was thinking about, you don't need the right degree or credentials to understand God's word. Uh, in Deuteronomy 30, Paul repeats it in Romans 10. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far away. It's not in heaven that you would say, well, somebody's got to go up there and get it for us and bring it back to us so we know how to do it. He says, nor is it across the ocean that you would say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it. In other words, it's too hard. I can't get it. He says this, but the word is very near you. It's in your mouth, in your heart, so that you can do it. You ask for bread, God will give you bread. He commended him for his shrewdness. So let's, let's look at Jesus here and see what he's trying to communicate. What does it mean to be shrewd? So I did just the normal standard Google. Uh, having or showing sharp powers of judgment, someone who is astute, has clever, discerning awareness, hard-headed acumen or perception, wise, prudent. Hmm. Okay. He's commending the shrewdness, not necessarily the person or the actions that they're doing. Somebody who knows something has to be done now. 
and I need to spend myself completely to get it done. Shrewd. I looked up one of the cross-references. I don't know if you know that about in your Bible. If you have a Bible, when you look at, you know, those little letters, L, A, B, 1, 2, and you go down to the little tiny print and it says, hey, here's a verse that is like this one. So I looked up for the word shrewd, shrewdness, cross-reference. And can you guess what chapter it pointed to? It's one that has been very special in the last couple of months. Matthew 25. And I was like, shut up. Like that's how sometimes I do that when I'm studying God's word. You gotta be kidding me. Cause that's what God has been hammering. And, and it's an ironic that we're here talking about the outward stuff and 25 is all about, is there fruit in your life? Are you caring for the poor? Are you caring for the resident alien? Do you have oil in your lamp? The 10 virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom, it's a story, but the story is very clear. There are five of them who are ready for the bridegroom when he comes back, when Jesus returns. They've got oil in their lamps, which signifies the light of God in their lives. They're ready. They have Christ. There are five who do not have the oil and the bridegroom comes and it's like, hey, you needed this. And they're like, yeah, but hey, can we borrow yours? No. Those who were wise had oil. Guess what the word for wise is? Shrewd. It's the same word. That's the cross-reference. You look back and say, okay, what is he saying to us then about our pursuit of following him? So I do a lot of this when I'm trying to, I read, I listen, I talk to people, you know, I go to Joe's office, talk to different people on our staff. What do you think? What about this? I do lots of laps around the lake and I was asking the Lord about this. Help me, give me, what's, what's the heart for me? And he gave me, um, brought to mind the image of a wave in the Pacific Ocean. Many of you know that I broke my shoulder several years ago from a wave in the Pacific Ocean. Years ago, years ago, I broke my shoulder. Yet whenever I leave town, whenever I leave town, people are so kind to tell me, don't get hurt. <gasps> oh my goodness, I hadn't thought of, thank, thank no, thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. I did go in the Pacific Ocean again. I am in one piece. It, it is possible. I'll just say that. I know. I know. Quit saying it. <laughs> but anyway, let's just say for a moment that God's word is like the ocean. I think it's a pretty decent description. It's a good thing. Because think about the ocean. It is powerful. It's vast somewhat endless as we think about trying to navigate it or find ourselves at the bottom, the deepest depths, full of life. It can shape, change the shape of coastlines, actually carve away at them. It can overpower almost anything on the planet. Just think about when the ocean gets churned up with a hurricane or something and we all scramble. What are we going to do? Okay, so it's, it's powerful. So it's a decent way to describe or to begin to describe God's word. When you say, how can God's word affect you? Well, it's kind of like the ocean. Okay. But one of the theologians of old, John Calvin, actually said this book is like God lisping to us. And that was a way of saying back then, it's like baby talk. Goo, goo. Gaga. 
Which you may be like, wow, I must not speak any language then. <laughs> but what's he trying to say? And if you think about, like, and I just remember with our kids, like, you don't wake up with a baby and, you know, an infant who wakes up and you say, well, good morning, son. This morning we will be discussing polypeptides. <laughs> you don't do that. You say, hey, I love you. Good morning. You are going to do great things in your life. Did you know that I love you? Did you know mommy and daddy love you? Hey, did you know that I love you? I think it's a great way to think about God's word. That is the message. And Calvin is trying to say, God is so deep. <laughs> He's so wide that this book is almost like one way of going. <clears throat> now it's still vast and still complicated and still gets to that place. So just walk with me for a second here. Uh, go with me for a minute on the ocean theme. So if God's word is an ocean and a story like Luke 16 is a wave that comes and hits a heart, hits a life. I did go into the ocean a couple of weeks ago and I didn't get hurt. And I actually, instead of being picked up by the wave and slammed onto the beach to break my shoulder, this time I caught it and I made it into the shore. Caleb and I were, were boogie boarding. Now, what can I say about the ocean? That's true. That's always true. It's salty. It's wet. It contains life. It's powerful. It's connected to the other waters in the world. But when it hits me in my 49-year-old body, depending on physics of the beach, the temperature of the water and the air, my position, my level of fatigue, my dexterity and athletic ability, which is pretty low these days, um, the timing of how I choose to take that wave, whether or not it's a beach break or breaking further out with coral, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. You get what I'm saying? There's truth about the ocean that when it hits you, and this is why you can come to the same verses again and again, 50 years in a row and be like, wow, Lord, I feel like it's new. <laughs> I feel like it's new. You're doing something. So the wave comes, and as a general rule, Jesus' parables are about the kingdom of God. He says that in some of them. The kingdom of God is like, da-da-da-da-da. The kingdom of God is like, and so that's, we get those hints, true riches, eternal dwellings, God being the owner, us being the manager, God being the father, us being the sons. You get it. He's the plant, you know, planting the soil of God's word in our hearts. This is the kingdom. So the wave hits you. And one person can look at the truth of God's word in this parable and say this, I am absolutely wasting my life. That may be you today. You may hear that God is calling for an account on your life and you may say, I'm, I'm absolutely wasting my life. And I had not even considered that God had a claim on me. That's new. I didn't even know that the stuff I had was from him, much less that I needed to steward it, do something with it. Someone else can say, the wave hits them, they're in a different position, they're in a different stage of life, God is doing something in their life, and they say, yeah, I actually already knew that truth, and I'm still living like this, in full-on disobedience. 
I'm in deep, deep waters and I'm desperate. Somebody else, yeah, I already know this stuff. I know about stewardship. I am a good steward. I tithe, I give. I have served you all these years and you wouldn't even kill me one fattened calf. Older brother, just depends where you are. I'm fine. Just don't ask anything more of me. I'll decide. Somebody else? Yeah, I love my stuff. I love my, I am after the gods of the age. I'm not worried about my future. Jesus, did you say something? I didn't even hear you. The wave hits in different ways. And yet it's still the Pacific Ocean. How is it hitting you today? Even though that wave will hit us in different ways, we can hone in on the truth of the ocean of Jesus, can't we? It's not cryptic. It's not hard to understand. We hear this parable and we understand this. This life is the dress rehearsal for the next. We know that. The stuff of this life can be put to use for his kingdom or I can waste it on me. I can live as if this is it. Live it up, everybody. Or I can live in light of the eternal dwellings that he mentioned. I can have friends here, great friends, and that's it. Or I can have friends there. Do I have friends there that can welcome me there? So as I let the wave hit me this week, I got a mouthful of salt water and I heard this, make friends who have eternal homes. Make friends who have eternal homes. Make friends that can receive you into eternal dwellings. I thought about this, reading some smarter people than me. And one of them mentioned, and I was like, man, that is spot on. I only know of three people who actually have a home in eternity. Actually, it's one God and three persons who have a home in eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make friends with those who can welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Okay, there we go. But make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, Jesus. What, what's that mean? Use everything you have, everything you've been blessed with in this life, every situation, money, stuff, jobs, relationships, utilize all of it, everything you've got, to acquire friendships with those who can actually invite you into and receive you into the eternal dwellings. Be shrewd about it. And what does Jesus tell us in Matthew 25? When you've done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. I was listening to my pastor that I grew up with uh, when I was younger. He's, he's retired now on this parable again, because I was like, somebody help me, throw me a bone here. And one of the things he said, and it was just a great reminder, heaven Yes, you get there by grace through faith, but there are rewards. There are rewards. <laughs> the Bible's really clear about that. And it even says in the book of Corinthians, some of you are gonna get in and it's gonna be like, whoa, as if by fire. You'll be smelling like smoke because you barely made it. You lived like hell your whole life and then finally you surrendered. So he's saying, make friends. Pursue the things of the kingdom. Be shrewd about it. Be wise. Do it now. So one thing, and this was in uh, 
kind of towards the latter half of the week. And it's weird how the Lord does that. Like sometimes it gives me a lot of stuff the first beginning and I let it stew. And I, I always, scripture to me is like a big old tough piece of brisket. And I put it in the smoker during the week and it just smokes, you know? And by the end of the week, I'm looking for a smoke ring and I want it to smell good and I want to taste good and I want to put some sauce on it. And then I want to enjoy it. And then I want to say, hey, you guys want to eat too? That's kind of what I try to do. So it was the latter half of the week and the Lord just impressed upon me this. Many times we approach the Bible and we're like, that's pretty good. Uh, fortune cookie. Blah, 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 blah. Uh. And that's about the extent of what we think of the verses. And I felt like Jesus just said to me, it was just one of those moments I was out going around the lake and he said, look at, look at me. <laughs> this is me talking. This is me talking to you, Chad. My son, I'm asking you these things. I'm asking. I'm not just giving principles. I'm not doing the Thomas Jefferson thing, life and morals. No, isn't that a great thing? I am asking you as your savior and friend. John 15, no longer do I call you servants. Servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Friends, that's what he wants. The longer I listen to him, the more I hear his voice. I don't really care what he's asking me. Seriously, if I'm in a room and Jesus is talking, I can be like, ah, what'd he say? I'll do it. I don't care. What'd you say? What, I wasn't, I'm sorry I wasn't listening, but whatever you said, I'm in. I'm in, Jesus. Chad, use your unrighteous wealth to make friends in light of eternity. Okay. If it's you saying it, I'm in. Tell me, Lord, what do you want? More time? Money, resources, my voice, my words, my family, my house, my future, it's yours. Here, it's all yours anyway. Money here is, of course, not just money. The word is mammon, which is stuff, money, and this is the one that hit home for me. Money personified, which is why Jesus says, it's either him or me. You can't serve both. He actually makes money a person in the way he says it right there. And do we need to argue with him? Sure feels like a person. It's, it calls to you. Stuff of life calls to you. Jesus says, it's him or me. And Matthew 25 is a great test of this passage in our lives. Are, we, are there off limits things or are we really open-handed with our stuff? I need to hear this but the evidence is going to be looked for. Did we feed, give, clothe, visit those the least of these? Richard Foster uh, has a quote. He said this, we early on in our walk with Jesus, we say things like this, and this could be you as the wave hits you. He may just be talking to you about your finances and your resources. And you may be saying something like this, how much of my money should I give God? Mm -hmm. And we actually ask you to do that. We never tell you what, we, even, we never even say, you better. I have no idea who gives around here. Nada. Okay? I don't know unless you tell me. But we, you know what we do tell you to do? Talk to Jesus. Jesus may tell you to give somewhere else. We know that, which is why we want you to talk to Jesus. We don't want that on our, it's, it's in him. But he says that question, how much of my money should I give to God? Eventually changes to this. How much of God's money should I keep for myself? if it's all his. So this all began with Jesus telling the story of someone who heard the words, I am letting you go. 
your own way. Figure it out for yourself. See how you do by yourself. And the guy's like, what am I going to do? Runs through his options. I don't know. I can't do this. I can't do this. It's a great question to ask of your soul today. What am I going to (laughs) do? What are we going to do? And there are times when the waves of God's word and truth need to break your shoulder. Needs to break you first before you eventually start writing with joy. How are you answering those questions, those realities? I'm letting you go. We're all born with that one. The sinfulness of our own hearts already have been let go. Relationship completely shattered with God, the Father. What am I going to do about it? What am I going to do now? I think Jesus' words and the thing he highlights about the shrewdness of the cheap suit slicked hair guy is more in the place of, are you being lazy about it? Are you like, eh, I don't know, okay. Or are you like, I'm knocking on doors. I'm talking to people. I'm using everything I have. Everything in me has to figure out what to do about my future. When it all hits the fan in the end, who are your friends? How does your life reflect this truth? And do you realize that the one who is asking you to consider these things is the greatest friend you could ever have? Not only that, you know those eternal dwellings? It's his house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. I don't know if you know that song, where we can play football. It's his house and he is inviting you in to live with him. (laughs) Live with him. I have this fear. I had it this week. I was telling Lisa about it. The core fear of being overlooked in this life, but also being overlooked in eternity. I think I'll get there, but then I think Jesus will be so busy. He'll be like, let's see. Yeah, it'll be about 3,500 years before you get your coffee with Jesus. (laughs) That's a real fear. And it's not based in truth. It's not based in what I see here. Because what I see here is Jesus is like, I got a room right next to mine. You can spend eternity with me. Talk to me as much as you want. We'll hang out. We'll go. We'll fly. I'm flying. I'm sorry. I'm flying. (laughs) We'll create worlds together. I don't know how it works. That's what God does. We will be like him. I want to create a planet. Call it Chatham. I don't know. (laughs) But he's inviting you to his house. Let's finish with my, the end of that story of when I was let go. My moment of being let go was a gift from Jesus. It was away from a toxic place. It's a church, toxic, still toxic. Friend of ours recently experienced what I experienced 18 years ago. Still doing it. And one thing I can tell you is sometimes you learn about how to lead by watching people lead in a horrible way. (laughs) A lot of how I lead here, or try to anyway, is based on a lot of the things I saw that I knew were not of the Lord, not of Christ. And so while it was difficult in the moment, the wave nearly broke me in two and our family in two. Oh, now, almost 18 years later on the nose, one, I get to be with you guys. That would have never happened. It would have never, ever happened. Just wouldn't have thought of it. 
the Lord knew what he was doing, but I also have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And if he wants my money, he can have it. I told you guys how that is something in my own life that's been a growing thing. My wife, Lisa, was someone who gave to the Lord when we came into our marriage. I didn't. I was like, why would I do that? I need it. (laughs) I've learned to do that. And now I can't even stand it until it's out of my checking account. Out, out. It's yours, Lord. I don't want it. Nope, that is not even there. It's yours. And love, love to give secretly and just fun things. It's just the greatest thing in the world. That's the work in my heart. That's something that God's done in me. So if he wants my money, he can have it. You want my time? Yep. You want my family? Yep. Do you want my life? By God's grace, yes. Even that. Unto death. How about you? Let's pray. Lord, I, I just love sometimes the ability to try to figure out what's going on in your word. And it's this deep ocean. And I hear your spirit just saying, just fall back. Just fall back and let it surround you. Let my truth, the truth of my kingdom, the truth of true riches, the truth of my love for you, of the grace that I've offered to you, let it just swallow you up. Quit trying to dog paddle through it. Let it hit you. This morning, if that's you, just want to ask, Father, that your spirit would give the grace for people in this room to fall back into the deep of who you are, into the truth of the life, death, resurrection, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that that is our one hope. And Lord, we want to build our lives on a firm foundation in Jesus Christ, nothing else. So Lord, as the wave hits us this morning, Lord, you know the application. You know what you're needing to do. And Lord, I pray for those this morning that might say I've been absolutely wasting my life, but that they would know today is the day that changes. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the Lord while he may be found. Hear his voice, respond. Do not harden your hearts. Lord, we bless you and we we thank you for how uh, life in Christ and that is part of it is Sunday morning, but it's really, it's the relationships in this room. Uh, It's when we go to work tomorrow and you're stirring things around in us from today and we call a friend and maybe we feel the grace to confess something that's been nagging at us that we've been carrying by ourselves And God, we sense the sharpening coming from a brother or sister in Christ. We sense the grace of your Holy Spirit coming in and healing broken places. Lord, as we talk with people in the cafe today, as we go to lunch, Lord, as we care for our babies and we lisp to them tomorrow morning, may we not forget, Lord, your words of grace to us that you're saying, I got a house, it's big. 
you're supposed to live there. I've done everything to get you there. Just fall back. Minister to us now as we sing Jesus. Amen. Now let's stand together and sing.